Hello, good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, March 31st, 2016, and this is episode 20 of Garbage. Alright guys, so tonight's episode is uh, a bunch of little things that we want to comment on. A lot of you guys have taken time to write in and ask questions and uh, respond to uh, the last couple episodes, which is great. Thank you for doing that. So we're going to try and cover all those bases. We have a little bit of stuff to cover with the uh, 5.9 release and uh, some other miscellaneous things that we saw on the internet this week that are kind of interesting. All right. So the uh, I guess the top story is that OpenBSD 5.9 has been released uh, a month early. Yeah, it's interesting that it's early. A lot of people have commented on that. Yeah, there's some sort of... Uh... Or we got uh, one person, Chris B, uh, tweeted at Garbage FM asking why Theo decided to release it early. The information that we have is basically just because we could. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we've talked about in previous episodes with the release process, um, the whole thing is already tagged and branched and uh, shipped off to the CD pressing plant. Um months ago so um the files have basically just been sitting there and the packages are built and uh it's just somebody flipping a switch and uh sending it out to all the ftp mirrors basically yep that's right and uh it's really for a benefit for you guys so you can get the releases more uh quickly there are a bunch of security errata already applied to the release so it's uh you know, there's no reason not to do it. I think uh, there was a little poll that was taken and nobody objected, so went ahead and did it, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that. Yeah, so um, let's just go over some things that are in 5.9. A uh, whole bunch of new hardware drivers. We have uh, ASMC, which is a new driver for the Apple-specific stuff that's on a bunch of MacBooks. Um, this basically enables you to uh, set the keyboard backlight um, and some other things like see how fast the fans are spinning and all that kind of stuff. Nice. Another thing that went along with the Apple stuff was the, uh, UEFI boot blocks, right? Yeah. So we can boot from, uh, EFI now, which, um, at least on my MacBook air, I was able to switch from using the old, um, bootcamp stuff, which emulates an old BIOS for old versions of windows and it was um, broken, basically, with uh, SMP support. So when you would boot to it on at least the MacBook Air that I have, um, it would just, like, hang after trying to detect uh, multiple processors. Mm-hmm. So um, now that the, we have EFI support, uh, I've been running that for a while, and it all just works like it should. So that's cool. Excellent. Um, And along with EFI support comes GPT support for GPT disk labels, which kind of goes hand-in-hand with that since, uh, at least on my MacBook, I can ditch the um, hybrid MBR stuff, which is uh, weird and not well-supported in various operating systems and tools and such. So now I'm um, just using GPT everywhere and EFI and... It's like living in the future. Yep. So what else happened in here? There was, uh, I'm looking at the article on on Deadly, and there was um, some graphics cards that got supported as well. I think the big one was the uh, 
Intel Broadwell and Baytrail GPUs now have uh, uh, hardware acceleration and support. So that's pretty awesome stuff for anyone who's got the uh, newer Lenovo laptops. Yep, um, I've got Baytrail or Broadwell on my uh, Samsung laptop, and the support uh, works. It's a little weird in some areas, but uh, it'll get better as we merge newer versions of, of Linux. I think this was based off of Linux 3.14. And they're up to like Linux 3.6 or something now. I don't nice. know. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've we have a ways to go as far as merging uh, more of those that code from Intel. Is there a issue with the Display Port on that, or does it have a Display Port? Um, I don't even know. I don't have any external monitors, so I haven't tested any of it. Okay. I think it has a Mini Display Port or Mini HDMI. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so the other big thing, which we've already talked about, um, there's a bunch of network work that's happened uh, moving towards uh, making better use of uh, SMP, and um, wireless networking is along the same lines where um, Stefan Sperling did a bunch of work to get uh, wireless N working on the IWM and IWN drivers, and uh, it's a it's a pretty marked improvement. I mean... When you're using the internet and downloading big stuff, you notice it right away. Uh, Zen support for mm-hmm. running as a uh, as a guest in uh, Zen, and I guess it was just Zen for the 5.9 release. Yeah, a lot of that other work came after the 5.9 release was tagged. Um, there's a virtual console interface that uh, is used by KVM and QEMU, um, so that is also... In 5.9, um, some various little drivers for temperature sensors and um, or SD card readers that are built into some laptops and stuff. The IPMI driver has been rewritten, and I think it works now with like the FreeBSD um, IPMI tools. So you can just run those, and uh, it'll work through the IPMI, the new IPMI device in the kernel. Nice. Um, and of course, all of the pledge stuff. Yeah, the pledge is a big one. Looks like uh, 453 out of 707 base system binaries um, are pledged now. Uh, 14 ports use pledge, like MUT and a bunch of, um, or MUT, Chrome, and some decompression tools. Mm-hmm. That's a really important thing. I think what it's, uh, I, I think the, benefit obviously of being able to pledge a program basically um the way this works just in case you guys aren't familiar is um when you start a program it does a bunch of stuff initially and then it kind of gets into this uh loop where it's just you know doing something over and over and over again and um so initially it might need a bunch of permissions it might need access to the file system and memory and all these different bits and pieces but then as the application uh gets into its running state uh it can do without all those permissions. So pledge is just a way to keep applications from escalating uh, their permissions to getting access to things that they, do, that they don't need anymore. And pledge kind of makes sure that they don't have those things. So the application launches, you give it some permissions. As it runs a little further and gets a little bit further into its uh, running state, you take away permissions for things that it doesn't need access to anymore. And it really helps... Um, one secure the the applications but it also helps kind of uh when you're 
applying a pledge to an application, it helps you see how the application is architected and you spot deficiencies really quickly. Uh, oh my gosh, why does this thing have access to all this stuff? It doesn't need that. Right. And, uh, so it's, it's a really big deal for the OpenBSD project. And I think it's, um, I think it's going to be one of those things that is, uh, hopefully widely adopted in other platforms as well. Bunch of, uh, DH client improvements. Seems mm-hmm. like, um, Ken is always working on that. Yeah. He's done a really good job with all that stuff. And just to clarify, um, the VMM stuff, even though that did happen during this past release cycle, that is not in 5.9. So um, you will need to run snapshots and build stuff by yourself if you want to play around with VMM. So just to clarify. New versions of OpenSMTPD, OpenSSH, with a whole bunch of uh, various changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of good things happening in there. Uh, LibreSSL 2.3.2. And a whole bunch of packages. So yeah, a uh, neat release. There's two songs available on the website and um, that are on the CD-ROMs if you order them. I'm not sure when those are shipping, but I would assume that they're uh, shipping soon. Yeah, it should be pretty soon. And uh, hats off to all the people who build releases, the the ports guys who are building all those packages and stuff. Those guys... That's a lot of work, and uh, if you ever have a chance to meet any of the ports guys or the people who are building releases, you know, buy them a beer, take them out to dinner. Those guys work really hard on that stuff, and I guess it happens all the time with snapshots as well, but, uh, you know, releases are a little bit uh, different. So, um, yeah, hats off to you guys. Thanks to all that you do. It's it's oft overlooked, I think, uh, when we just download snapshots and use packages. Yeah. All right, so other OpenBSD news. Yeah, some interesting stuff. So uh, OpenBSD.org has, uh, what, CSS now? We have a style sheet in OpenBSD? Yeah, this is uh, crazy. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So uh, maybe another 20 years they'll have a uh, 5 megabyte JavaScript library too. Yeah, maybe. For managing mouse overs and stuff. Um, I think it started with the FAQ, and uh, it's been kind of adapted to other pages, um, but the basic style of the site is not really much different yet. Yet. Yeah. TJ was working on that. He uh, he was working on the FAQ and went through and took a, a really big swing at some stuff, a lot of initiative there, and made a lot of improvements. So uh, if you guys haven't read the FAQ lately, browse over there, um, take a look at it. And uh, hopefully you enjoy it, because I think he did a lot of good work. I mean, I've never had trouble finding things on there, but sometimes there's a little bit to weed through to get where I'm, I'm looking. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, don't, I think a lot of it's been removed, but there were a lot of like older questions about really old hardware that isn't really a frequently asked question anymore. So right. a lot of that stuff was uh, cut out. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know that there's a good way to segue into this. Um, you already touched on OpenSSH improvements, and uh, I kind of got a kick out of um, something that happened. There was a post on the um, on a mailing list, and it was basically like, um, I noticed that OpenSSH, you know, deprecated SSH version one and all this other stuff, and it'd be really nice if you guys gave a heads up. And um, Damian Miller replied back. He's like, well. 
I, I uh, put it in the release notes for last release that this is the last time we're going to have SSH version one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, the, the thread, bef- I mean, there's, you can go read the thread. It's on the mailing list, but uh, the thread before that was kind of funny, but that was really the one that brought it home. And um, so, you know, people complaining about, Oh, we didn't know this was coming and all this other kind of stuff. It's been communicated in uh, months in advance and, you know, people just weren't paying attention and, caught them off guard. Uh, maybe there's a better way to make it known. Maybe people just need to read release notes a little bit better. But anyway, it was, I got a kick out of it. I was sat at my desk for five minutes and laughed at that. <laughs> I was going to maybe talk a little bit. Um, there have been some diffs um, on the mailing list about Malik. And um, we've talked about Malik a little bit in the past. And, um, you know, like, improvements that have happened to it. Mark Ketnis was making improvements to to it. Um, but there's a, another diff now out there um, by Otto Morbeck, and he's um, introducing a diff to have Malik have multiple pools. And he's, I mean, this is a uh, work in progress. He's not telling everybody, go run this on your machines. He's looking for feedback, you know, trying to iron out the concepts. And he gives some uh, some things that he has to improve uh, right up front, and basically, um, he's saying that like this new implementation is currently fixed to four different pools with a thread per pool mapping, and he's saying that you know these are things that need to be improved on. So um, he said all the pools always get initialized, even for single-threaded programs uh, where you're not going to be using multiple threads. You're only going to be using or not going to be using multiple pools. You're only going to be using one. So, um, he's asking for, you know, people to kind of look at this stuff and, um, try it out and giving you the caveats and maybe looking for suggestions and feedback. And there has been a little bit of dialogue on here, um, back and forth about, Hey, here's a a way you can do this. So, uh, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Um, OpenBSD, uh, is, is trying to improve malloc right now so it's more more performant and so that we can still keep our um uh security features in there uh doing what they want to do and i think they've been improved to a place where we're happy right now but we're trying to make it a little bit more performant is the goal of all this yep and uh for those that don't know um the name of our malloc like there is like je malloc that's used in some projects ours is basically basically called auto malloc because it is the malloc that uh, Otto wrote a long time ago. There was a, speaking of malloc, there was an interesting um, post on MISC today uh, from Theo. He was replying back to someone talking about um, XOR and how the idea here is that OpenBSD supports uh, XOR memory, which means that the memory is either writable or executable, but not both. And... um, it was kind of interesting to see the history and um, hear a little bit more about um, how programs actually, there's certain programs that explicitly require uh, memory to be both writable and executable and that we still have to support that. And so, um, you know, there's other, um, there's, there's a lot of software in this ecosystem, obviously. Um, but he was kind of urging and kind of may, maybe making light to the fact that um, some of the software that we're using is deliberately doing things that are, you know, unacceptable. And he went on to talk about um, how some of these JIT implementations um, 
are trying to be just a little bit more performant by asking for memory that's writable and executable at the same time. And, you know, they, they thought at the time this was really important. And now we kind of know that it's um, not a very drastic difference between uh, a JIT implementation that only uh, or that will use uh, XOR memory and it's uh, substantially more secure um, to have the XOR memory being used especially in that type of environment so it was a really interesting read um, we'll put a, a link up to the email so you can kind of read through the the questions and his replies to that because uh, really really cool stuff to peruse especially on the uh, MISC mailing list it's not something you see very often so now are we done with OpenBSD News? I think we might be done with OpenBSD News. All right. So go download 5.9 or buy a CD. Yeah, make a donation to the project. Yeah, that too. OpenBSDFoundation.org. Yep. So now we have what? We have a lot of uh, follow-up from uh, people writing in and all that kind of stuff. Do you want to start talking about all that? Um, well, I guess we got a... Uh, a lengthy email back from one Pedro uh, Giffoni. I don't know how I to think, pronounce his last name. Yeah, I think so. A FreeBSD developer. Um, he was replying to our last uh, episode about project uh, kind of cross-pollination um, and had a lot of uh, good points in there. So do you want to go over those? Yeah, he was really courteous and in the email and candid too. I I liked that. Um, he also I asked him if he if we could talk about this and commented on there uh, in the podcast, and he said absolutely go for it. But um, yeah, let's see here. And this makes the second FreeBSD developer to uh, write into us. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm glad that we have. Or people from other projects listening to our show, and that's just OpenBSD. Yeah. Well, the perspective is healthy, and that's mm -hmm. what I like about it. So one of the things that he offered up is that um, sometimes um, we have to, we probably don't make enough of a distinction here, but there is a significant difference or enough of a difference between the BSD projects that sometimes changes don't make sense for uh you know, NetBSD and FreeBSD, where they do for OpenBSD. And that's one of the things he kind of called out in here. He said, look, you know, you guys are, um, you know, you want to pioneer things and you want to make big, um, you know, intrusive changes. And um, that's, you know, something that doesn't always work in FreeBSD. And I, and I do see uh, that, that there's some truth to that. Um, and he mentions in the case of like Arc for Random, um, they were looking at the uh, the algorithm and they said performance-wise, it was just too big of an impact uh, for FreeBSD. Now, obviously, when OpenBSD was working on this, the folks in OpenBSD who were working on this, they had a, a goal that was different than just performance. They said, we want to have the ability to get random good random number generation no matter where we are, if we're in the kernel, if we're in user land, if we're early on in boot, if we're booted up and whatever, we don't have to worry about reseeding pools. We don't want to have to worry about stirring things. We don't want to worry about anything. We just want it to work. And um, if it came at a small, um, you know, performance hit, that was not really too big of a deal. I think that the benefits far outweighed the uh, performance hit. And 
there is a, a, a bit of a difference here between OpenBSD and FreeBSD in that uh, OpenBSD uses um, random number random numbers everywhere all the time and like even early on in the in the booting phases of the kernel drivers use them all sorts of stuff so <laughs> for us it was a big deal to have this work and it wasn't an issue of oh this is a performance impact it was an issue of first we need to make it work <laughs> and then we need to try and make it a little bit more performance so um yeah i guess it's important to talk about those kind of differences so let's see what else did he say in here uh he called us out on uh that nobody uses FreeBSD current and it's usually mm. broken. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's just an old wives' tale. It, it could be. Um, maybe it was coincident. Uh, it, it did happen to me, and I uh, I piped up about it at EuroBSDCon, and the developer said, "What what laptop do you have?" And I told him, and he said, "Ah, yeah, that one's broken." So maybe it was my bad luck. So um, uh, we shouldn't be making too many. Uh, big sweeping statements about that. So um, they, he did also point out that they have uh, build machines running, doing continuous integration on all of their branches. So they're able to catch um, build failures and things like that. So um, usually he said um, FreeBSD current is pretty stable. So um, and he actually went on to say like uh, Netflix tracks their current branch. Uh, rather than other snapshots and things like that. So, I, you know, um, we probably went a little bit too far on that. Maybe it was just our personal experience. But, uh, yeah, so he did want to provide some clarity to that. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't run FreeBSD very often. I have it running on a partition on my laptop um, for testing and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, But, I mean, like you said, the few times that I've tried it, um, I kind of take the mentality, oh, I'll just try current because it probably has the latest hardware support. And then I try it on my laptop and um, stuff doesn't really work yeah. uh, very well. And it isn't, but it, it isn't like hardware support, like, you know, stuff that you would expect. It's like the installer doesn't work properly or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's where my perspective comes from. But um, you know, I'm sure with OpenBSD, we, like we've said on previous episodes, we push out broken snapshots sometimes and it happens. So I guess just, ex uh, adjust your expectations. Yep. Our, our bias is probably from very limited use of FreeBSD and a whole lot of use of OpenBSD. So, yeah. um, so another thing that, um, he wanted to point out too, is that, um, he pointed to uh, some OpenBSD developers to the generous updates that they made to GCC 4.2.1, and we haven't really adopted those in. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what he means by pointed them to him. Like, I don't know if he sent diffs and said, here's some fixes, and we dropped the ball, or uh, maybe it was bad timing. But yeah, um, I'm sure that, you know, he probably has tried to send stuff up to us, and we said no, and... Uh, or somebody dropped the ball, but I think generally that that does happen if there's something that's useful to the to the project. So the uh, the fun topic of money did come up in here a little bit, and we stuck our necks out a little bit here. Um, and and he wanted to point out too that FreeBSD has um, been a major sponsor for many BSD events, and I think that that's really great. Um, and 
and I have personally benefited from um, some FreeBSD folks, uh, you know, go to conferences and they pick up dinner for the table, which is really nice and stuff. Um, but uh, I will say, like, as generous as all that is, um, and, it, and it does benefit all the projects because we're collaborating, um, the OpenBSD Foundation and sponsoring hackathons is a completely different thing. So, like, when Google gives money to the OpenBSD Foundation, that can go in directly into development, whereas, you know, when you have these um, conferences and meetups and stuff like that, that's a good thing, and, it, you know, there's advocacy going on there. There's some maybe cross-BSD talk happening and stuff there, which is good, but it's not exactly the same. So just understand that they're different. And uh, I definitely did not mean to take a stab at uh, the generosity of the FreeBSD folks in that way, but it is important to understand the difference between a donation to the foundation and a donation to sponsoring an event and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, generally, I see like when you go to the BSD conferences, the FreeBSD folks are having a summit there or they're doing something there beforehand. So, you know, they, they help with the conference and then they have their, their developers there. And that's not something that OpenBSD does. So we don't have you know, developers coming to the conferences and collaborating in that way. So, but anyway, I, I do really appreciate, um, their contributions to the BSD conferences because those are good. Um, and it looks like the final point was that, uh, OpenBSD uses CVS and that makes it hard to deal with changes. Yep. Um, I don't really buy that. CVS is pretty easy to use. Yeah, I don't buy it either. I've, <laughs> I've used Git and I've used Subversion and I've used, uh, Mercurial and, uh, is is uh versed as I am in all these things I think CVS is the thing that is the least intrusive for me for getting code in and managing um all that kind of stuff so um I know people have their preferences so we won't pick on his preferences but I I do general I do genuinely um appreciate this feedback because I think um you know it it does offer insights from the other side of the fence uh so to say and, uh, and I was really, I, I really appreciated the time that he took to, uh, write in about this stuff. And I may not agree with all of it, but I think it's good to talk about that kind of stuff. I hope you guys agree. And if you guys have comments, please let us know. Uh, we love that kind of stuff. And even if we don't agree with you, that doesn't mean you're not right or we're right or anything like that. It's just fun to discuss this kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, so thanks, Pedro. Yep. Uh, what else do we have? Yeah. So, uh, somebody, um, hit me up on Twitter and they were asking about the web frameworks when we were talking about web frameworks quite a bit. And honestly, right now the web applications that are um, like maturing that particular thing are not public facing. They are just um, an internal app that I'm using. And uh, the, my personal venture that I have is still, you know, using big fonts and things like that. So I hope to have that updated sometime in the next century. Um, all good ambitious one day and I'll push it out and I'll let you guys know where it is. Um, I actually, I have a new, um, manager where I work. And, uh, one of the first things that happened was, um, he's like, let me see what you're, you know, doing for your web framework. And I showed him the web framework and he's like, Oh, you built this. And I was like, yeah, I built this. And he's like, okay. And you know, he, he didn't like object to it. He didn't like seem to take him back. He just, observed and I thought that was really cool and he came in the next day and he's like this is really really cool and um he's like I'm a .net developer and I write a lot of stuff in Windows and IIS 
And he said, I absolutely love the way this works. I love the way it's architected. I love how simple it is. I love how easy it is to figure this stuff out. He's like, this is really, really cool. So, um, uh, anyway, I, it's looking promising that my new boss likes the web framework and, uh, hopefully I'll have a little bit more time to devote to it. Um, and I can get something out there for you guys to benefit from it as well. Then we can, uh, move the openbsd.org website to use it. I hope we don't need anything that fancy. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's a little bit different about this is this is for a web application rather than a website. So. Yeah. Is it uh, Go or is it front-end JavaScript stuff? The job, the front-end is HTML and JavaScript, and then the back-end, like the application servers in Go. And um, the reason I did it that way is, I think we talked about this before, that we have um, other machines calling into each other. So rather than just serving back HTML with data in it, I just serve back the, the data as JSON and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. yep, that's the way it works. So hopefully I'll get that out there and hopefully you can take a look at it and uh, maybe you'll find something interesting that I'm doing wrong and you can uh, send me an email and say, look, this would be awesome if we just did this too. I'd love that kind of collaboration. Uh, I had a uh, email from... Seth Jackson about uh, asking to talk about RSS. Um, I guess this was uh, from my talking about my RSS reader Denim, mm -hmm. um, which integrates a uh, Twitter client into it because um, I hate Twitter's website. <laughs> so um, this actually was uh, um, after he had sent this email. Uh, something on the internet happened lately that kind of ties into this. Um, so Pinboard is a website that um, basically took over like the old look of the delicious uh, link sharing or bookmarking website. Um, it kept the old delicious uh, look once delicious was bought by Yahoo, I think. And then uh, they promptly like ruined the site and it's been sold and bought a whole bunch of times. Um, but Pinboard uh, is available through ifttt.com or if ift. I don't know how people say it, but uh, ifttt, like you can connect all these uh, websites together through their APIs. So like if you um, post something on this website, uh, ifttt will pick it up automatically and then it can like transform the data and do some action on another website. Um, so like, uh, pushover is, is a part of it. So you can have, like, if you post something new on Pinboard, you can create a recipe on the site to send a pushover notification for it or something like that. So there's transition, uh, IFTTT is transitioning to a new, like developer, um, platform thing. Um, because the way that they've been doing it all these years is that they write the code on the backend to talk to your API and integrate it into their site. Well, they've grown to the point where there's like like I think it's more than like a hundred different services that they talk to. And I guess over time, um, maintaining all those, uh, custom APIs or like integrations with all those custom APIs has become burdensome, I guess. <laughs> and so they're trying to get developers to make their own channels now so that you, um, can do all the work to integrate IFTTT instead of them, which sounds good, except that they're the developer tool that they have does not let you like, it's not like a query builder. So you can tell it how your API works. The way that they're doing it is that you have to implement IFTTT's API on your site. And then IFTTT will only talk to that endpoint. 
so it's like they want all these sites to do the work of like um like doing all the custom backend stuff on their own so hmm. that everything that it's is exposed to IFTTT is like standardized so uh, they approached the guy that runs Pinboard and said, "Like you need to switch to this new system, or we're not, um, or we're gonna shut off your channel." And I guess he said he didn't want to do all that work. So then IFTTT emailed all of the users that they have that use Pinboard's channel and said, uh, "Pinboard's going away, um, so your stuff won't work anymore." So there was kind of this um, back and forth on uh, Twitter with the guy that runs Pinboard. He's pretty funny. Um, basically saying that like he didn't want to do all the work for them and that their terms of service were bad and whatever. And so I posted this to Lobsters because um, I had to do the same thing for Pushover, but the appeal for me was a bit greater because um, I run a paid service that has gotten at least a few users that through IFTTT, and I know a lot of Pushover users um, use IFTTT. Right. So for me, it was worth the few hours that it took to integrate to make the custom API on my backend, so that I can continue um, being on IFTTT. So anyway, all that's to say that um, that RSS is kind of dying, and that things like this show that um, people integrating with each other's APIs like is not scalable, I guess. No, it's not. So whereas like RSS, it was standardized. So every site implements RSS and you can just have one RSS reader that works everywhere. Whereas now you have to like have all these custom libraries and stuff to talk to everyone's custom API because Twitter doesn't support AP or RSS anymore. Um, trying to think of what other websites used to do it and they've uh, since killed it. Instagram, I think. Yeah, so they're all kind of turning into like these... Uh, walled gardens where you have to sign up with further developer tools and get an API key and you have to uh, you only get a few you know hundred or thousand calls per month and um, like as Twitter has shown if you try and make a product or service that works on that API uh, Twitter can just pull the rug out from you no matter like at any time and just say oh yeah our terms are changing you can't do that thing that you were doing uh, anymore and you basically have no recourse because you're building everything off of their API. And I, and I don't really understand uh, why RSS feeds need to go away from these places. I, I don't understand like the rationale behind it. Is it causing them some sort of like undue grief? I mean, and what I think it is, is I think it's that uh, they don't want people to just you know, draw off the RSS feed. I think they want to drive people to their site so they can hit them with ads is what mm -hmm. I think. Yep. Or like I said, um, like Twitter, if you want to, if you want access to their, to certain data that you, you could have used before through RSS and you could have done it anonymously, Twitter wants to sell you the like custom firehose access, uh, that costs many thousands of dollars per month. So it basically, pushes out all the little guys that um, don't have the, the money for that. Kind of tells you how much money they're making in advertisement. Sure. Um, I think that Google Reader actually had a lot to do with killing off RSS. And the, the irony is like that they said that they killed Google Reader because RSS was already dead, uh, which doesn't really make sense because so many people still used Google Reader and have yeah. since switched to all the other sites like um, 
News Blur and some of the other ones that that sprung up as soon as uh, Google Reader shut down. And I mean, like I have my uh, RSS reader and there's probably a hundred feeds in there. Um, so yeah, I don't know why everyone's hell bent on killing it. I mean, there's other avenues that would benefit from an RSS feed, um, notifications and updates, you know, it doesn't have to be something like Twitter, you know, social media. I understand those guys are doing stuff, but if you wanted to follow some announcement mailing lists and stuff like that, I mean, those are... I think that works best under that RSS style feed. Yeah, I mean that's what a lot of my feeds are. It's these ones that only update like once a month, if that. Um, but it's just like people or companies or services or whatever that I don't want to lose touch with. So mm-hmm. on the rare occasions that they post something, I can read it right away. But it seems like a lot of these people have just moved to, uh, you know, posting a tweet when they post something new, which yeah. is understandable, I guess. But um, a lot of these companies and stuff and people, I don't really want to follow them on Twitter because I don't want to see all the tweets for unrelated stuff that they're talking about. Yeah. No one does. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't really know uh, what the future of RSS holds, but um, I hope it doesn't go away. Yeah, it'd be a shame if it did. So if... uh if I pick on somebody for doing something that I think is a little funny, it would uh, help me feel better about life a little bit. No, seriously. Um, I uh, I had an issue. I was trying out Otter Browser a long time ago. And one of the things that I noticed is that um, if I make a cross-domain request, um, cross-domain HTTP request, when the site content originated over an HTTPS connection, um, that Otter was like, yep, go ahead and do that. And I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting because Chrome and Firefox, um, they throw some error about, you know, mixed content. Like you can't serve HTTP content back over a site that originated on HTTPS. And so at the time I was like, "Ah, I don't know. Otter's a new browser. It's kind of goofy. And uh, there's a guy who's working on it on uh, both Otter Browser and our OpenBSD port of Otter. And that's Adam Wolk. And he was like, oh, tell me what's happening. You know, I'll, I'll talk to these guys. And so I've been pretty lazy about the whole thing. But um, it turns out that it's not an issue in, like, WebKit or something like that. It's an issue with QT5. And... Um, the QT5 guys, obviously, like, they're doing, like, windowing stuff, and they don't really, they aren't really familiar with the web stuff, and they're like, I don't know, why should this do this? What's the deal? Like, I'm not too familiar with it. And it, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm kind of, like, not in really too interested in, in investing time to help them get that fixed, um, but at the same time, I think it should be fixed. And at the, in the second hand, I was like, what does the windowing layer like have to do with the browsing experience? Like the web browser, like the core of the browser should be deciding those rules. Not like whether you use GTK or QT5 or whatever. That made no sense to me. And um, maybe it's just how blurred our lines have become between these different types and layers of technology that we pile onto each other. And the interdependencies that we have. I just was really taken back by that. It it just made me wonder what on earth is happening to this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I don't and even I, understand how that could be possible. Like how the windowing system could even know about any of those things. I mean, aren't you just isn't the lower layer just sending the windowing system like a bitmap? I was hoping it was. I really was. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm sure that there's somebody out there who could tell me like exactly what's happening and why. And and I'd be curious to find out, but at the same time it just um it it doesn't make sense to me. And so I thought I'd talk about it and you guys would send us an email and then comment about it and chime in about it. But I just, it felt weird to me. It felt like another one of those technology things that just went way off the deep end while no one was looking. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's pretty weird. Oh, I ended up returning my uh, Pixel C. Oh no. Uh, that keyboard layout is just awful. Yeah. Um, I really liked the way that that it works with the magnet and stuff, but the keyboard was basically unusable in that layout to do anything um, other than, like, you know, typing an email. You mm -hmm. can't do any, like, using an SSH client was unusable. You couldn't access any of the special keys like pipe and brackets and all that stuff very easily. Um, and so without the keyboard being useful, um, the tablet isn't really that useful, so right. I just ended up returning it. That's a bummer. Yeah, so, but I mean, since they're separate parts, I would hope that maybe in a future update they're able to release a new uh, keyboard, or a new version of it that's just the replacing the keyboard part that has a better yeah. layout. But maybe I'm in a minority that tries to do, um, that needs all those special keys. But um, maybe not, because then the new, like, iPad Pro, the keyboard that you can get with that is the full like Apple keyboard that's on a laptop. It has the exact same layout. The keys are just smaller on the 9.7 version. So it still has all of the um, the pipe and the brackets and all that, and the tilde and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know why Google would do that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if, if you're going to type, you want a full keyboard. And if it's just a marginal improvement over the on-screen keyboard, there's really no point in paying $150 for it. Yeah. I mean, you can you can buy a pretty nice keyboard with mechanical switches and fancy backlighting for $150, and um, it's not going to have missing keys and weird layouts and all those compromised situations. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, I don't. The thing I don't get is that if you look at an image of the layout for this keyboard for the Pixel C. Mm -hmm. They have like huge keys that could have been shrunk to fit more keys in there. So I don't really get it. Um, it's just a very weird layout. It's like they started on the left and made really big keys, and then they got to the right side of the keyboard, and they're like, ah, crap, we ran out of room. Uh, <laughs> let's just drop a whole bunch of keys, and then we'll make the enter key skinny, but we'll make it two rows high. And yeah, it's just really confusing. Yeah. That's too bad. I, I, I like the hardware that's in that tablet, though. I mean, the processor and system on chip and all that kind of stuff, 64-bit ARM. And uh, I think that that tablet is a pretty nice piece of hardware with the case and stuff like it was. It's just, it's a shame that the peripherals are what kill it, you know? seems like the opposite of what normally happens. Yeah, I mean, I loved the design of it, the like all-aluminum case. And when you close the keyboard on top of the screen like it looks like a tiny little chromebook pixel yeah um and i loved how they did the magnet 
so that you could basically use like tilt the screen at any angle and it would stay there even after you're like tapping on it with your finger um so it was a cool design they just screwed up the keyboard which was uh too important for me yeah uh well i guess that's all we have for this episode so if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode you can reach us on twitter at garbage fm Subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Brandon, where are you on the internet? I'm on the internet. I'm on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. I'm also on Google+, um, and that's where you can find me. And I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. Thanks, guys. You're the best. <laughs>